Like most of my generation, I was brought up on the saying, Satan finds some mischief for idle hands to do. Being a highly virtuous child, I believed all that I was told and acquired a conscience, which has kept me working hard down to the present moment. But although my conscience has controlled my actions, my opinions have undergone a revolution. I think that there is far too much work done in the world, that immense harm is caused by the belief that work is virtuous, and that what needs to be preached in modern industrial countries is quite different from what always has been preached. Everyone knows the story of the traveler in Naples who saw 12 beggars lying in the sun, it was before the days of Mussolini, and offered a lira to the laziest of them. 11 of them jumped up to claim it, so he gave it to the 12th. This traveler was on the right lines. But in countries which do not enjoy Mediterranean sunshine, idleness is more difficult and a great public propaganda will be required to inaugurate it. I hope that after reading the following pages, the leaders of the YMCA will start a campaign to induce good young men to do nothing. If so, I shall not have lived in vain. Nat, welcome to Made You Think. It's excellent to be here, as always. (laughs) So today, as... Uh, everyone was just introduced to, and as they could probably see from the title, we were discussing In Praise of Idleness by Bertrand Russell. This is a it's a very short piece, and so we're actually doing something kind of fun with this episode, where instead of giving you all just our summary notes from it, we're actually going to read the whole thing throughout the episode. I'm 95% sure that we're not violating copyright laws by doing that because it was published before 1942. So it should be okay. Uh, but if if we get any, <laughs> if this episode disappears off the internet, everyone will know what happened. <laughs> but yeah, I think so, we'll be all right. <laughs> Russell was a, a famous philosopher, mathematician, writer, political activist, and he was a Nobel laureate as well. So he's probably most known for the Principia Mathematica which created this logical base for mathematics, as well as his contribution to philosophy, especially through analytic philosophy and logic. And then he was a strong pacifist as well, right, I think? Uh, After World War II, I believe. So I think one of the interesting things with Russell was how his views changed across World War I and World War II, and how those impacted his philosophy and his works. I think he didn't get really into philosophy until after at least the First War and definitely the Second World War. So because those made him feel like he needed to contribute more to the thought of the world, right? Before he was doing more of the logic mathematics side. And he wrote this essay in praise of idleness in between the First and Second World Wars. So he talks here about the war, right? The war, the Great War. He's talking about World War One. World War II hasn't happened yet. And this essay was inspired by what he saw during the war, which was obviously everyone in Europe is out killing each other, but the basic standard of living within the countries was able to mostly be maintained despite total working hours being significantly lower. And from that, he realized we could actually have the same standard of living without working nearly as hard. And so this short essay was basically praising that idea that we have all of this invention machination now. We don't need to be killing ourselves like we did for most of human history just to be comfortable. And so this essay is in praise of idleness. Yeah, this is a really fun read as well. I think a lot of us, I I know I fall in this camp. I don't know if Nat would say he falls in this camp as well, but it's easy to fill up the day with a lot of work. Yeah. And it's almost more painful to like take a step back and actually say like, well, how important is all this stuff that I'm doing? Right. And what's the balance? Exactly. Yeah. I definitely struggle with that. So reading this was really interesting and uh, 
Yeah, I enjoyed it. I think you guys will too. Yeah, there's a lot of cool differentiations in here too between you know, what is work, what yes. is leisure, what is spending. I think we're going to dive into all of that oh, as we go. So what we're going to do is we're going to take turns reading sections of it, continuing through the essay, and then discuss these topics as he brings them up. So any more on the exposition? Um, only thing is one of my favorite Russell quotes, which I don't know when he said it. I've just like seen it many, many times especially in the political era that we live in. But uh, the quote goes, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wiser people so full of doubts. And I think that very well describes a lot of the political things we see these <laughs> the days. The world on, that we are in. Now. Yeah, yeah. On, on many sides, right? Like, yeah. I think it's right and left, like extreme right, extreme left. It's, you know, terrorism is one thing, like, but then the extreme anti-immigration hysteria on the other side. Uh, and then like all the people in the middle are like, I don't know which one's right. Um, yeah, it's just I find that quote to be enlightening. <laughs> Hopefully in the interest of making everyone wiser, then we can instill some doubt through this podcast <laughs> yeah. and this episode. And I think I will jump in to continuing the essay. Before advancing my own arguments for laziness, I must dispose of one which I cannot accept. Whenever a person who already has enough to live on proposes to engage in some everyday kind of job, such as school teaching or typing, he or she is told that such conduct takes the bread out of other people's mouths and is therefore wicked. If this argument were valid, it would only be necessary for us all to be idle in order that we should all have our mouths full of bread. What people who say such things forget is that what a man earns he usually spends, and in spending he gives employment. As long as a man spends his income... He puts just as much bread into people's mouths in spending as he takes out of other people's mouths in earning. The real villain, from this point of view, is the man who saves. If he merely puts his savings in a stocking, like the proverbial French peasant, it is obvious that they do not give employment. If he invests his savings, the matter is less obvious and different cases arise. One of the commonest things to do with savings is to lend them to some government. In view of the fact that the bulk of the public expenditure of most civilized governments consists in payment for past wars or preparation for future wars, the man who lends his money to a government is in the same position as the bad men in Shakespeare who hire murderers. The net result of the man's economical habits is to increase the armed forces of the state to which he lends his savings. Obviously, it would be better if he spent the money, even if he spent it on drink or gambling. But, I shall be told, the case is quite different when savings are invested in industrial enterprises. When such enterprises succeed and produce something useful, this may be conceded. In these days, however, no one will deny that most enterprises fail. That means that a large amount of human labor, which might have been devoted to producing something that could be enjoyed, was expended on producing machines which, when produced, lay idle and did no good to anyone. The man who invests his savings in a concern that goes bankrupt is therefore injuring others as well as himself. If he spent his money, say, in giving parties for his friends, they, we may hope, would get pleasure, and so would all those upon whom he spent the money, such as the butcher, the baker, and the bootlegger. But if he spends it, let us say, upon laying down rails for surface card in some place where surface cars turn out to not be wanted, he has diverted a mass of labor into channels where it gives pleasure to no one. Nevertheless, when he becomes poor through failure of his investment, he will be regarded as a victim of undeserved misfortune, whereas the gay spendthrift who has spent his money philanthropically will be despised as a fool and frivolous person. All this is only preliminary. I want to say, in all seriousness, that a great deal of harm is being done in the modern world by belief in the virtuousness of work, and that the road to happiness and prosperity lies in an organized diminution of work. 
All right. And that gives us the whole thesis just kind of laid out clearly at the end there and fighting against one of the main objections and issues that he sees right at the beginning. I, I think what's kind of cool about this part is how he lays out the difference in how we treat people spending money. And I noticed that I do this with myself too, where it's so easy to feel okay spending $1,000 on growing business stuff. But when you spend $1,000 throwing a party or something, that's like, oh my God, that seems insane, right? (laughs) Right. Probably even a 10 to one ratio, right? I think it's easier to spend $1,000 on multiplying work than it is to spend a hundred dollars on you know booze for other people. Exactly, <laughs> or even like a hundred dollars on anything that's for pleasure. There's just something about that. Like the other day, I actually bought a like I just moved into a new apartment, right? So um, I was buying speakers, and there was like you know I could get cheap speakers, or but I really wanted these Bluetooth soundbar ones with the subwoofer, and in the great scheme of things, it wasn't that much more. It was like $80 more than the cheap ones I was looking at. I felt initially so wary of hitting that buy button on Amazon Mm. to buy the $80 more expensive ones, even though it's like, how much do I invest in like the business side of what I do? And I would spend 80 bucks without thinking about it. But for $80 on myself, there's this big sort of like, I don't know, weight on your shoulders to spend money on pleasure. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And then let's be honest, half the experiments we do don't even work and probably more than half but we don't really feel bad about those at all. <laughs> no. Well, that's the other funny example he gives here, which is probably significantly more true in our time than when he was discussing it, which is that people spend money on these enterprises that go nowhere. And that's you know almost causing harm because that money could have been put into something way more productive, right? Where if you- Or guaranteed enjoyment, I guess. Or guaranteed enjoyment or, or even just guaranteed productivity, yeah. right? Yeah. I think he would say that if you have the option between spending a million dollars investing in very speculative startups or spending a million dollars on groceries- Or beer through a limited brewing company. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think you would say the latter is a better use of money because you're at least guaranteeing that the money is being used productively as opposed to in all likelihood end up just getting burnt because somebody thought we needed another photo sharing app. Right. So if there's any VCs listening to this, I think the moral of this uh, first part of this essay. (laughs) You should should all just shut down. No, they should just shut down. They should take their... uh, you know, a significant chunk of their fund and use it to buy beer. <laughs> throw parties. Throw parties for everyone in New York and San Francisco. <laughs> well, a lot of startups do that. Exactly. <laughs> Which is essentially, I guess, maybe a different chain. The money still goes ultimately into... It ultimately goes into throwing parties <laughs> and everything. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. A lot a of it. A significant chunk of it. Yeah. Um, I think also, like, this is kind of quite contrary to maybe some of the things we talked about in other episodes, like I think particularly the anti-fragile one where we talked a lot about experimentation and then even mastery maybe a little bit. But this is very kind of like the opposite side of that. This is like, hey, like if your experiments are most likely going nowhere anyway, maybe you should also spend money. Maybe you should spend some of that money on yourself. That's kind of a lesson that I'm taking away from this first section here. Makes sense. But yeah, it, I think the other thing we do want to talk about too is, or at least that I found interesting, was this view on savings or like how we view people who save versus people who spend a ton of money. Because the way he's describing what how society views those people, I definitely view people that way as well. Like, oh, if they just save all their money? Or I, I view it as like a good thing. But like, he's saying he's it's a bad it. thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I'm saying like it's the kind of I view it the opposite of how he does instinctively. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but... Well, you know what was interesting is if anybody hasn't listened to our Sovereign Individual episode, they should go listen to it because one of the things that they outlined in that book as a problem of the church was that it created a like psychological disdain towards savings, right? This idea of the miser 
And they argued that the argument against savings reduced economic productivity, right? <laughs> it's kind of exactly what he's saying. Which is sort of what Russell's saying yeah. here is he's yeah. kind of saying like, no, we should discourage saving because we don't want so much economic obsession. We want people to have more fun and enjoy life, right? And when they were talking about it in Sovereign Individual, they were saying that the church was doing it to like maintain control over people because they couldn't, you know, go out and do anything beyond right. it. And it's like that same mechanism can be used here to encourage just enjoying life more and not being stuck in work. And even like from a kind of like taking a zoomed out like society view, there could even be like an evolutionary argument for that, that societies that did encourage the sort of like spending behavior, their economies were more robust so as we learned in Sovereign Individual, when your economies are more robust, you can have bigger armies. Right. And become more powerful. Be more powerful. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Maybe there's something to be said for that as well, because Europe did become the most powerful region in the world through something, something right. culturally, most likely. Right. And, you know, natural resources, which they weren't blessed with, but they were able to raise the largest armies and that they're really good at taking really resources good at, from other exactly. places. <laughs> right. But there's something yeah. to be said for how a society is structured that enables you to do that. I mean, that's kind of like a whole chunk of sovereign individual was about that, which is fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, we'll stop harping on that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just go listen to it. Yeah. You want to read the next section? Yeah, sure. All right. So back to the essay. First of all, what is work? Work is of two kinds. First, altering the position of matter at or near the earth's surface relative to other such matter. Second, telling other people to do so. The first kind is unpleasant and ill-paid. The second is pleasant and highly paid. The second kind is capable of indefinite extension. There are not only those who give orders, but those who give advice as to what orders should be given. Usually two opposite kinds of advice are given simultaneously by two organized bodies of men. This is called politics. The skill required for this kind of work is not knowledge of the subjects as to which advice is given, but knowledge of the art of persuasive speaking and writing, i.e. of advertising. Throughout Europe, though not in America, there is a third class of men, more respected than either of the classes of workers. There are men who, through ownership of land, are able to make others pay for the privilege of being allowed to exist and to work. These landowners are idle, and I might therefore be expected to praise them. Unfortunately, their idleness is only rendered possible by the industry of others. Indeed, their desire for comfortable idleness is historically the source of the whole gospel of work. The last thing they have ever wished is that others should follow their example. This is a good distinction, right? Yeah. <laughs> because I think that when you read it at first, in just some of the intro, you might think that he's advocating this sort of four-hour work week, outsource your job, make yeah. other people work so that you can relax yeah. mindset. And he's very clear that that's not what he's advocating. Right. He's not saying yeah. idleness at the expense of others. Right. He's saying, you know, like fun, diversion. And I think he's taking like the zoomed out view of like society as a whole needs to be a little more idle and not saying that you should just pass on your work to other people and then and then just hang out you and get relax. To yeah. Because yeah. That, that's sort of the aristocracy that he's criticizing. Right. And I think he gets into this more later, but there's this gospel of work, right? Uh, he also calls it like the slave mentality. Mm, yeah, he does say that, that later. Yeah. Everybody needs to work really hard, but those ideas come from the people who don't want to work and who... Right. It's convincing people to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like the kings <laughs> saying that, oh, you need to toil to be part of my kingdom. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, because that's how you get more gold and food <laughs> right. and everything. Right. <laughs> Right. So yeah. I think the distinction he would make is that there's a difference between 10 people working four hour days, which is what he wants, right. versus five people working eight hour days. So five people can work zero hour days, right. which he doesn't want. Right. It's 40 hours of total work either way. But yeah. the first one is definitely preferable because then more people have access to idleness. Yeah, I also liked the first part, which I don't know if it was anything like groundbreaking, but I just thought it was pretty funny. 
of the difference between like work that's being done directly like direct work versus the like management layer and then like the consultant layer on top of the management layer (laughs) i just found that to be hilarious yeah and then also how he says like the two opposite kinds of advice is called politics right but i think that even applies like company politics as well oh yeah Yeah, it's like all kinds of politics he's not just talking about like geopolitical politics he's talking like there becomes more work because now you have to decide between the different kinds of advice and then there's always another side of the advice that you're getting or you end up Pursuing both. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And then he also says the the skill required is not the knowledge of the subjects, but the art of the persuasiveness. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's he basically nailed the whole consulting industry. Oh, yeah. All right. Diving back into the essay. From the beginning of civilization until the Industrial Revolution, a man could, as a rule, produce by hard work little more than was required for the subsistence of himself and his family. Although his wife worked at least as hard as he did, and his children added their labor as soon as they were old enough to do so. The small surplus above bare necessities was not left to those who produced it, but was appropriated by warriors and priests. In times of famine, there was no surplus. The warriors and the priests, however, still secured as much as at other times, with the result that many of the workers died of hunger. This system persisted in Russia until 1917 and still persists in the East. In England, in spite of the Industrial Revolution, it remained in full force throughout the Napoleonic Wars and until a hundred years ago when the new class of manufacturers acquired power. In America, the system came to an end with the Revolution, except in the South where it persisted until the Civil War. A system which lasted so long and ended so recently has naturally left a profound impress upon men's thoughts and opinions. Much that we take for granted about the desirability of work is derived from this system, and being pre-industrial is not adapted to the modern world. Modern technique has made it possible for leisure, within limits, to be not the prerogative of small privileged classes, but a right evenly distributed throughout the community. The morality of work is the morality of slaves, and the modern world has no need of slavery. Yeah, that was. I think that's very similar to actually something that we were reading in the other podcast, the Sovereign Individual one. Yeah. I was thinking um, in Sapiens too. Yeah, right? Sapiens as well, exactly. It's this yeah. idea that pretty much from as soon as we created agriculture right. up through the industrial era, you've really had to work right. these minimum eight, more like 12, 14 hour days. Just for subsistence. Yeah, exactly. Just to keep yourself alive. Yeah. And it's really only been in the last 100, 150 years that more people could have a good life with some leisure while only working, you know, eight hour days. Right. Right. And that's a big change. And weekends, right. And days off and holidays. And when the idea of poverty is so different, right, where it's gone from you just are barely having enough to like get by and eat. And now you can be poor, but still have a car and a television and a refrigerator and right, all these amenities, right? That Right, which someone like a hundred so years ago wouldn't have had no matter how rich they were. Oh yeah, I mean, you'd be making well below but median fair, wage. Parts, but to be fair, there are parts of the world where people are like still definitely in the old definition of poverty. Oh yeah, where, yeah. But I think we're talking about America. In America, right. America, I'd say maybe the Western world in, yeah. in general, developed world in general. Yeah, you're totally right. But it is interesting because... Well, he says beginning of civilization. So I guess he's probably talking about agriculture there. I think he's referring to civilization as the beginning of agriculture. I guess even before that, you could hardly call it civilization. Right. And it was interesting also how he brought out the warriors and priests thing, because if you think about it, the surplus kind of goes to the warriors and priests, which is warriors, the army, obviously. And then priests would be like, if you look at a lot of kind of historical buildings, the most grandiose of them are either the churches, the temples, things that are tied to the sort of religious dogma of whatever the region is. 
And so that's where the surplus is going, right? So if you're a farmer, you might be producing a surplus, but you're certainly not getting it. Yeah, exactly. Ends up coming out in all the tithes and donations yeah. and everything. But what's kind of cool about this is that distinction of from the beginning of civilization. And again, this came up in Sovereign Individual, but pre-agriculture, you only had to work maybe eight to 15 hours a week to get enough food to be comfortable. And then tribal humans could spend the rest of their time, you know, walking around, hanging out, playing, having sex, whatever. And we're almost at the point where we could move back towards that amount of work again, which is kind of, I think, what Russell's getting at here is that we can almost look at that what is it, 6,000 year period of agriculture as this brief break in humanity's general happiness as a not extremely hardworking species yeah. and try to return to that you know quasi state of nature ability to work enough to be very comfortable, but then be able to spend most of your time on leisure activities. Right. It's pretty cool. Ready for a tangent? Yeah, I am. Let's okay. do it. You know how like when you talk about like getting creative breakthroughs and things like that, it's like it never comes at the result of like, oh, I spent 12 hours a day working on that. And then it just happened to happen. Like it does happen like that where you'll work on something for a while and then you'll be in like the shower yeah. and randomly come up with an idea or be walking somewhere and randomly come up with an idea or just be like laying down and come up with something. Right. But it's never while you're spending that like 12 hour thing. And I wonder if like humans are maybe, I'm just speculating here, not saying this is how it is, but maybe like biologically adapted to think better when we're not like under this constant work regime because it's only maybe a 10,000-year-old invention. Well, he touches on all of that later in the essay, so yeah. maybe we should... Wait for that. Save <laughs> it for there. <laughs> you want to right. reading? Yeah, we'll go back to the essay here. It is obvious that in primitive communities, peasants left to themselves would not have parted with the slender surplus upon which the warriors and priests subsisted and would have either produced less or consumed more. At first, sheer force compelled them to produce and part with the surplus. Gradually, however, it was found possible to induce many of them to accept an ethic according to which it was their duty to work hard, although part of their work went to support others in idleness. But this means the amount of compulsion required was lessened and the expenses of government were diminished. To this day, 99% of British wage earners would be genuinely shocked if it were proposed that the king should not have a larger income than a working man. The conception of duty, speaking historically, has been a means used by the holders of power to induce others to live for the interests of their masters rather than for their own. Of course, the holders of power conceal this fact from themselves by managing to believe that their interests are identical with the larger interests of humanity. Sometimes this is true. Athenian slave owners, for instance, employed part of their leisure in making a permanent contribution to civilization which would have been impossible under a just economic system. Leisure is essential to civilization, and in former times, leisure for the few was only rendered possible by the labors of the many. But their labors were valuable, not because work is good, but because leisure is good. And with modern technique, it would be possible to distribute leisure justly without injury to civilization. Modern technique has made it possible to diminish enormously the amount of labor required to secure the necessities of life for everyone. This was made obvious during the war. At that time, all the men in the armed forces and all the men and women engaged in the production of munitions, all the men and women engaged in spying, war propaganda, or government offices connected with the war were withdrawn from productive occupations. In spite of this, the general level of well-being among unskilled wage earners on the side of the Allies was higher than before or since. The significance of this fact was concealed by finance. Borrowing made it appear as if the future was nourishing the present. But that, of course, would have been impossible. A man cannot eat a loaf of bread that does not yet exist. 
The war showed conclusively that by the scientific organization of production, it is possible to keep modern populations in fair comfort on a small part of the working capacity of the modern world. If at the end of the war, the scientific organization, which had been created in order to liberate men for fighting and munition work, had been preserved, and the hours of the week had been cut down to four, all would have been well. Instead of that, the old chaos was restored. Those whose work was demanded were made to work long hours, and the rest were left to starve as unemployed. Why? Because work is a duty, and a man should not receive wages in proportion to what he has produced, but in proportion to his virtue as exemplified by his industry. This is the morality of the slave state, applied in circumstances totally unlike those in which it arose. No wonder the result has been disastrous. Let us take an illustration. Suppose that, at a given moment, a certain number of people are engaged in the manufacture of pins. They make as many pins as the world needs, working, say, eight hours a day. Someone makes an invention by which the same number of men can make twice as many pins. Pins are already so cheap that hardly any more will be bought at a lower price. In a sensible world, everybody concerned in the manufacturing of pins would take to working four hours instead of eight, and everything else would go on as before. But in the actual world, this would be thought demoralizing. The men still work eight hours. There are too many pins, some employers go bankrupt, and half the men previously concerned in making pins are thrown out of work. There is, in the end, just as much leisure as on the other plan, but half the men are totally idle, while half are still overworked. In this way, it is ensured that the unavoidable leisure shall cause misery all around instead of being a universal source of happiness. Can anything more insane be imagined? I love this example with the pin company because it's so immediately understandable. And I actually think it's even more relevant today oh, than yeah. in the pin example. I mean, I'm sure you know people who work in offices. I know people who work in offices. And like half the time they're on Facebook, let's say Facebook plus a combination of other social sites. Um, another part of the time they're like playing games, reading the news. The actual amount of work has probably gone significantly down. Oh, yeah. But the hours are the same the as same. what they were pre-computers. Right, when you were working in a factory and you right. had to be on the assembly line for eight hours. And you were actually thing. being productive for those eight hours because you were actually putting that part into that machine or whatever. You know, like you were actually producing something. And we've kind of copy and pasted the model, even though each individual human is way more productive than they were 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a, amazing. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the biggest realizations of when you start to work for yourself and do things on your own without a schedule you have to adhere to is you realize just you can probably get two to four times as much done in a day within those same eight hours simply because you're not stuck in the dead time that comes with a lot of office work. Yeah. And do you also find that like, I mean, this is something I struggle with. So uh, sometimes when I have the whole day, the work will somehow stretch itself into the eight hours, even though like if days where I only have two hours to do work because, you know, I'm doing other things, maybe we're recording a podcast, maybe I need to go somewhere, right? Like I get a ton of work done in two hours when I have that sort of constraint on my time. So it's less about like, and probably it's just me being still ingrained and in kind of doing the corporate type of work, but it's very easy to just stand in front of your computer for, you know, eight hours, not get a whole lot done and then have a day with more restrictions on your time where you only have two hours maybe and get the same amount of work done in those two hours. I've come up with a few strategies for fighting that. Let's hear them, Nat. I need them. <laughs> okay, well, we'll do a quick tangent on this. <laughs> but Because like that is a really big challenge, right? The whole Parkinson's law that yeah. you'll stretch whatever work you have into the time that you have. So and I think anyone just getting started working for themselves will, yeah. you know, kind of feel that way as well. Well, and people will do this in offices too, where it's like, okay, you know you're going to have some dead time, so you may as well 
maximize how quickly you get your actual work done and then spend the rest of that time reading or doing whatever else you'd rather be doing since you're stuck in the office. The thing that's been most helpful for me is this technique where I keep a tab open with my calendar. And this is based on an article that Taylor Pearson wrote, but I keep a tab open with a calendar and every hour or so I log what I've been working on for that hour. And then I categorize it as either green, so highly productive, my most important work, which would be, you know, writing or doing one of these podcasts or prepping for one or doing the reading for one, or I categorize it as yellow, which is, you know, it's not my most important work, but some of it still needs to get done or red, which is like, this is a waste of my time. I shouldn't be doing it. And then what I've noticed is that by doing that regularly and keeping that log, whenever I start to spend time on anything, I start to think, is this a green, yellow, or red? Because you're kind of like watching yourself of like, what am I going to mark this as? Yeah. And of course, you don't want to mark anything red. I don't want to add any red because at the end of the week, I take my whole calendar and I say, what percent of my working time was green, yellow, red? And the idea is for the green to be 80%. And the total number of hours worked are not that important. The ratio is important. So by like having that awareness, I've forced myself to think as soon as I start doing something, is this green, yellow, or red? And if it's yellow, it's like, all right, I'm going to do it as fast as possible to yeah. get it off. If it's red, I just won't do it. Yeah. And if there's no other green thing for me to do for that week, I'll just go read right. or go to the gym or whatever. Right. And that's been You'll really be human. helpful. For, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> go, go be idle. Go be idle. Right? <laughs> and that's been really helpful for avoiding that trap of feeling like that's a really good strategy. I'm going to use that and I will report back. That, that's probably one of the absolute best productivity hack techniques awesome. that I've found. Uh, and, and yeah, because it doesn't matter if you do like an 80 hour week if 80% of it was red. Right. You actually didn't get anything done. Well, and what I found, too, is that I write way faster now that I've started doing that because I don't stretch one article into like a four hour thing. I can get a first draft of it done in, you know, 30, 45 minutes and then I can go do something else. Right. Just because I'm not just thinking of these abstract eight hour chunks. Definitely recommend everyone trying it. But we'll link to the article in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, this is essentially the idea here is that if a company could have the same number of people working four hour days produce the same amount, then that's what it should be doing. The problem, obviously, is that economic incentives don't allow for this. Right. And that's the one, I think, big weakness of this essay is that Russell's arguments kind of fail in light of just economic incentives. Right. So with the pin company. If you realize that you can make twice as many pins in the same amount of time, then you maybe fire half of your staff, make the same amount of pins, but then you can have that, or you don't fire them, you repurpose them to another product or something, right? You expand or you invent new products or like there's always going to be another use for work. And I guess that not everything is as simple as making a pin. That too. Right. I wonder too, if, um, has any company ever tried, like, let's say this exact scenario happened. What if you offered your employees to work half the amount of time or some reduced amount of time in exchange for reduced money. But I don't think everybody would take that. But like if they said, okay, you take a, you know, 20% salary cut, but you work like two days a week. Some people might take that. Well, I know there are companies that have reduced their weekly working hours to like 30 and have had no loss in productivity. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I mean, right? What's the surfboard company? Um, there's one, the the CEO wrote a book called Let My People Go Surfing about their whole company mentality. And that's one of the... Yeah, and I think in the summer, they only work four-hour days or something so that they can all go surfing. There's a ton of companies <laughs> that do that, but yeah. they don't... It's not official. It just happens. That's true. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, I mean, in the brief period where I was working for a company, that was part of why I much preferred working from home than from working in an office. Yeah. Because even if 
the company says that, oh, you know, it's, you know, come in and leave when you want. There's always optics. Well, and it's always yeah. a, yeah, there's a social pressure. Yeah. Well, if you're, yeah. if you're leaving it too, right. People are going <laughs> to think bad of you yeah. and it, like, it's not it's your slacker. fault if you're more productive. Yeah, probably, exactly. Right? <laughs> but then you have to stay <laughs> Nat, there. Nat, you're fired for only leaving it too, but I get it. All my work <laughs> doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> You only stay here for five hours. I it's remember. a bad look. <laughs> I interned at a consulting company when I was in college. Okay. And, you know, obviously, like, nothing gets done there. And I could get all the work they expected me to do done in two hours. And so I just kind of always sat in the corner of the office and I would just bang out my work and then release it over the rest of the day yeah, and then spend the next like six hours reading books. You can't be done in the two hours. Yeah. You can't be done be, and leave. Yeah. Right. That would be fun, but you can finish it, release it throughout the day yeah. and then like read books on your Kindle on your laptop. So exactly. Yeah. If you can't get the leisure, you can take it in other ways. Yeah. All right. I guess back to the, back to it. The idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich. In England, in the early 19th century, 15 hours was the ordinary day's work for a man. Children sometimes did as much and very commonly did 12 hours a day. When meddlesome busybodies suggested that perhaps these hours were rather long, they were told that work kept adults from drink and children from mischief. When I was a child, shortly after urban working men had acquired the vote, certain public holidays were established by law to the great indignation of the upper classes. I remember hearing an old duchess say, what do the poor want with holidays? They ought to work. People nowadays are less frank, but the sentiment persists and is the source of much of our economic confusion. Let us, for a moment, consider the ethics of work frankly, without superstition. Every human being, of necessity, consumes in the course of his life a certain amount of the produce of human labor. Assuming, as we may, that labor is on the whole disagreeable, it is unjust that a man should consume more than he produces. Of course, he may provide services rather than commodities, like a medical man, for example, but he should provide something in return for his board and lodging. To this extent, the duty of work must be admitted, but to this extent only. I shall not dwell upon the fact that, in all modern societies outside the USSR, many people escape even this minimum amount of work, namely all those who inherit money and all those who marry money. I do not think the fact that these people are allowed to be idle is nearly so harmful as the fact that the wage earners are expected to overwork or starve. If the ordinary wage earner worked four hours a day, there would be enough for everybody and no unemployment, assuming a certain very moderate amount of sensible organization. This idea shocks the well-to-do because they are convinced that the poor would not know how to use so much leisure. In America, men often work long hours, even when they are well off. Such men, naturally, are indignant at the idea of leisure for wage earners, except as the grim punishment of unemployment. In fact, they dislike leisure even for their sons. Oddly enough, while they wish their sons to work so hard as to have no time to be civilized, they do not mind their wives and daughters having no work at all. The snobbish admiration of uselessness, which in an aristocratic society extends to both sexes, is, under a plutocracy, confined to women. This, however, does not make it any more in agreement with common sense. I really like this distinction where he's pointing out that, hey, men of 1935, you're totally cool with women enjoying their life. Right. <laughs> so why can't men enjoy their lives? Yeah, too, right? Right. <laughs> what is the difference? Yeah. And especially, you know, why don't you want your sons to be able right. to be free and be happy? Yeah. Right? It's like, no, no, no. You have to work 12 hours a day, even if you're already well off. Right. Where is that mentality coming from? And I feel like we have less of this in the West now today. I think it's more of the enduring mentality in Asian societies, certainly, right? I think we definitely see that in school and work 
And I, I don't know if it comes from the same place, but that idea of probably it's similar. It's probably a very yeah. similar place. Well, actually, I mean, it actually probably is the exact same place in that right. it would have yeah. come out of industrial Europe in the 1800s right. and then and exported then out, exported out. And then, you know, China and a lot of other Asian countries went through the same thing in the 1900s. Right. right? And so there's been less of that adaptation time as there has been. So maybe it'll Europe. change over time, but yeah, maybe over the next hundred years, right. There'll be some dampening of it. But I mean, we still see this in European and American society too, right. right? It's still a very common thing. And <laughs> I mean, it's almost, I don't mean this in any offensive way, but it's almost unfortunate, I think, for some women in that it's gotten worse, where I think there are definitely a lot of women who would, and there are men who want to do this too, but who want to be stay-at-home parents, but that's been stigmatized. Oh, I see what you're saying. And especially if you're, you know, if you grew up in a well-educated family and you're a woman, you're almost not allowed to not have a high-powered job anymore, right? It's stigmatized. And so it's gone in kind of the reverse direction from what Russell wants here. That's totally true for guys too. Oh yeah, but it's it's like always been true for guys. That's true, yeah. And so what Russell is saying here is like, no, 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 it's cool for women to hang out and enjoy their life. Men should get to do that too. But instead it's gone the other way where no, 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 women have to work all the time as well. And, And oftentimes like, I mean, let's be clear, oftentimes even harder because also there's definitely a stigma oh, yeah. against a woman being like, let's say a woman has a child. They're not allowed to be like bad mothers. Like society does not like excuse that. Oh, because she has a high powered job. Right. But like for guys, that's totally okay. Like guys oh, can be like yeah. absent from being a good dad. It's totally fine. It's like, oh, he travels a lot for work. He sees his son on like weekends. Providing for the family. Exactly. But right. if like a woman does that, it's like, oh, she's not a good mother. Yeah. Right. So there's like definitely that double standard. So he's saying that men should kind of equally be allowed to be idle as women in the when whenever this was written 30s uh, yeah. yeah 30s but yeah you're totally right the opposite <laughs> has now happened where it's like oh no we're not even gonna allow women that privilege now we're going to like make them work just as much as men and actually more actually because more they're still privilege. expected to be you know great mothers as well so yeah things have kind of gone the opposite way of what he was preaching here um i do want to bring up the one point like i'm curious how psychology plays into this like i wonder if you know, I think we were talking, this also came up in the sovereign individual one, where idleness can sometimes lead to chaos as well, mm. when there's no kind of goal. And I mean, you could argue that it's definitely been true for the aristocracy forever, right? Or what is the goal, I guess, of aristocracy? They're not really, they're already kind of like, hang out, they're hanging idle out, rich. idle, right? Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that's like what he's arguing here is that like, everybody needs to be in that camp. But I do wonder, like, okay, like, let's say we all had four hour work weeks, right? Like, I don't necessarily know what that society does look like. If we were all civilized, would not cause mischief if we were yeah. bored, I would say that that is, it would be an awesome society. But I don't necessarily know if that's true. Because even myself, like when I'm bored, I don't necessarily always make good decisions. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Judging by my senior spring of uh, college, right, where right. I watched uh, basically like every possible TV show more than I ever have gone out in my life. And I guess maybe I was contributing to the economy. By going out and drinking. Russell would approve of that, (laughs) Twix. But basically my point is like, I wasn't becoming like an artist or reading all the time or, you know, it was not like I engaged in like meaningful idleness, but maybe that doesn't matter. I wasn't committing any crimes that I know of. So yeah. yeah. Uh, Well, he touches on that a little bit later too. So I think um, we'll definitely circle back on it because that's another one of the big challenges to this. And it gets back to that universal basic income idea. Yeah. But going back to the psychology part of it, I did feel a little bit empty though. Mm. at that time but i don't know how much of that is like ingrained of like oh i've just been in school my whole life and then we're working and then oh you have this period of like you know i was in like two classes and then i'd also recently shut down my company so it was like in this point where like i felt like i had nothing to do because i went from like 80 hours a week to like 10 
and I just felt like I'm so uh, like I don't know, not idle. Basically, is probably the right word. Yeah. So you know, the pleasure is kind of good, and the you know, it's all good. But there was a little bit of like an emptiness of like, what am I supposed to be doing? Mm. But that might just be a societal brainwashing. Yeah, I mean, it could be something that requires a detox. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's typical for people to have you know months or even a year after leaving a job or college and just, you know, having to make their time for themselves, you know, it takes some adjustment period. Right. So I guess the question then is, you know, are there some people who never make it out of the adjustment period? Right. Right. Or it's like, I don't necessarily know if, I mean, it only lasted for a few months because then I started working, but it's hard to know if like that can persisted for a year. Would my decisions have gotten more chaotic or like more anti-productive yeah. <laughs> would, would you have eventually been like all right i need to get it together and go do something or yeah. did you have to be kicked out of it by like this other job that you took right yeah or i'm saying like or would i have like chased bigger and bigger thrills mm. because i wasn't getting that kind of like high out of my work right right you know become uh, a like cocaine dealer and move to columbia or like yeah something, <laughs> or like i don't you know but all i'm yeah. saying is like i don't know if like you replace it with something and i don't know if that's like a societal ingrainment that's happened for all of us, because we came up in this work-induced society, like there's no sort of like grand reset that you can hit. Like we've been brought up in this idea of having to do work, so you can't just hit reset and be like, okay, well, start everyone from a blank slate. Mm. So you can't just like overnight go to his mentality. Is what I'm saying. Like how do right. you, like how would you even make that? How would you adjust it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. All right, back to the essay. The wise use of leisure, it must be conceded, is a product of civilization and education. A man who has worked long hours all his life will become bored if he becomes suddenly idle. But without a considerable amount of leisure, a man is cut off from many of the best things. There's no longer any reason why the bulk of the population should suffer this deprivation. Only a foolish aestheticism, usually vicarious, makes us continue to insist on work in excessive quantities now that the need no longer exists. In the new creed which controls the government of Russia, while there is much that is very different from the traditional teaching of the West, there are some things that are quite unchanged. The attitude of the governing classes, and especially of those who conduct educational propaganda on the subject of the dignity of labor, is almost exactly that which the governing classes of the world have always preached to what were called the honest poor. Industry, sobriety, willingness to work long hours for distant advantages, even submissiveness to authority, all these reappear. Moreover, authority still represents the will of the ruler of the universe, who, however, is now called by a new name, dialectical materialism. The victory of the proletariat in Russia has some points in common with the victory of the feminists in some other countries. For ages, men had conceded the superior saintliness of women and had consoled women for their inferiority by maintaining that, that saintliness is more desirable than power. At last, the feminists decided that they would have both since the pioneers among them believed all that the men had told them about the desirability of virtue, but not what they had told them about the worthlessness of political power. A similar thing has happened in Russia as regards manual work. For ages, the rich and their sycophants have written in praise of honest toil, have praised the simple life, have professed a religion which teaches that the poor are much more likely to go to heaven than the rich, and in general have tried to make manual workers believe that there is some special nobility about altering the position of matter in space. Just as men had tried to make women believe that they derived some special nobility from their sexual enslavement. In Russia, all this teaching about the excellence of manual work has been taken seriously with the result that the manual worker is more honored than anyone else. What are, in essence, revivalist appeals are made, but not for the old purposes. 
they are made to secure shock workers for special tasks. Manual work is the ideal which is held before the young and is the basis of all ethical teaching. For the present, possibly, this is all to the good. A large country, full of natural resources, awaits development and has to be developed with very little use of credit. In these circumstances, hard work is necessary and is likely to bring a great reward. But what will happen when the point has been reached where everybody could be comfortable without working long hours? In the West, we have various ways of dealing with this problem. We have no attempt at economic justice so that a large proportion of the total produce goes to a small minority of the population, many of whom do no work at all. Owing to the absence of any central control over production, we produce hosts of things that are not wanted. We keep a large percentage of the working population idle because we can dispense with their labor by making the others overwork. When all these methods prove inadequate, we have a war. We cause a number of people to manufacture high explosives and a number of others to explode them, as if we were children who had just discovered fireworks. By a combination of all these devices, we manage, though with difficulty, to keep alive the notion that a great deal of severe manual work must be the lot of the average man. Interesting. I would disagree with a significant chunk of that last part. Yeah, what would you disagree with? The centrally controlled production. I would say historically we've seen that does not work. Well, I don't think he's saying that it works. I think he's just saying that it exists. Yeah, sort of. Because we also have to understand the context he's coming from. And this is pre like the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So he hasn't seen that. He hasn't seen that. They just came out of World War One, right? Which provided that major. Which was a centrally controlled production, though. If you think about it, right? Oh, yeah. Any sort of rationing system, even though it was in the West, that's still mm-hmm. centrally controlled production. Exactly. So he's saying it worked during the war. It did, yeah, right. and it like helped with. There was especially in the U.S. There was the Depression, and the war was right. extremely helpful for getting out was of that. Was it written during the Depression? Probably, right? It would have been towards the tail end of the Depression, yeah. Or actually, thirty-five. Those were kind of in the heart of the Depression, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, at least in the states. Yeah, in the states, be, yeah. and I think it was. There was some depression in Europe too, yeah. right? Because I mean, that was what led to Hitler's rise right. as well. I think so. He's seeing a ton of unemployed people, ton of unemployed people, but being taught that there's this notion of you know, like the need to work, and then the state manufacturing reasons for them to work by going to war with other states. Right. Right. Like that's not a crazy narrative. No, especially at that time in that oh, context, yeah, it's exactly. not. Yeah, and I feel like we're kind of seeing this with North Korea. Maybe now it's so hard to say what goes on in there. I know. I can't even. I mean, nobody make really. Any <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, I looked into it with binoculars a couple months ago, but that's that's about as close close as anybody gets. Were you at the DMZ? Yeah, the DMZ. It was pretty cool. But uh, I saw some guys farming. They, even even from far away, they looked sad. Oh. But, <laughs> no, that's terrible. Um, that's horrible. Well, no, but I mean, you could imagine that part of Kim Jong-un's, you know, military posturing and production of all these weapons and stuff is just a way to keep the people occupied, right? Because when you don't have enough food to go around and you have no, like, significant exports or means of production, right? What else are you going to make them do besides like military drills and build weapons? And I think this kind of goes back to Sapiens as well about the, which we have to do an episode on at some point, but uh, the fact that so much of like humanity is just based on a story, Mm, right? Right. The shared mythology. Yeah. So when your shared mythology is that, oh, we're at war with the West or we're at war with, you know, whoever like your big bad wolf is, you keep the people happy and prevent revolution and prevent unrest and all the things the government wants. So that could be what he's doing as gives well. You, it gives you that shared goal, that yeah. shared future. Yeah. Right? I referenced revolt of the masses last time too. Which is honestly, but. I just gave the example of governments, but I actually, as I said that, it totally applies to companies too. Yeah. Totally applies to companies. Like when you think about, uh, I think maybe we had an offline conversation about this, but 
how Facebook gives the impression that they are, you know, changing the world and, or most startups, you know, give the impression of changing the world or Facebook in particular says they're connecting the world. Yeah. Really, they're getting you to click on ads. Like if you yeah. really drill down to what Facebook is, it's an ad company mm-hmm. the same way that a TV channel is. It's just done at a massive scale. And yeah, there are things you get just like at a TV channel, you get some good shows and Facebook, you get a good social network, but they're an ad company. So in some ways, the shared mythology is to keep the people at Facebook feeling like, oh, wow, we're contributing very nicely to the world. And probably that increases productivity. Right. So and branding. It's it, it also, as well. you know, the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Yeah. But that's not a good <laughs> shared not mythology good for uniting a company. Good yeah. We, we want to get people to spend more time on our site so they buy more things and are yeah. less happy with their lives. <laughs> exactly. Actually, probably buying things because they're less happy yeah, with their lives. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah, that's so, not, not a good narrative. So the shared mythology thing is like, Definitely true. I mean, any group, I guess, maybe yeah. you can make that argument. It's not just companies. It's not just governments. It's any group. Well, that, that was part of the premise of Sapiens, right? That's how we transcend Dunbar's number, right? right? You can't go past this 150 number of people, yeah. which yeah. is maintained through gossip, right? If you want to transcend gossip as the unifying factor, you need mythology. Yeah. So I guess in that sense, then it makes a little more that sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Back to the essay. In Russia. Owing to more economic justice and central control over production, the problem will have to be differently solved. The rational solution would be, as soon as the necessaries and elementary comforts can be provided for all, to reduce the hours of labor gradually, allowing a popular vote to decide at each stage whether more leisure or more goods were to be preferred. But, having taught the supreme virtue of hard work, it is difficult to see how the authorities can aim at a paradise in which there will be much leisure and little work. It seems more likely that they will find continually fresh schemes by which present leisure is to be sacrificed for future productivity. I read recently of an ingenious plan put forward by Russian engineers for making the White Sea and the northern coast of Siberia warm by putting a dam across the Kara Sea, an admirable project but liable to postpone proletarian comfort for a generation while the nobility of toil is being displayed amid ice fields and snowstorms of the Arctic Ocean. This sort of thing, if it happens, will be the result of regarding the virtue of hard work as an end in itself, rather than as a means to a state of affairs which it is no longer needed. The fact that moving matter about, while a certain amount of it is necessary to our existence, is emphatically not one of the ends of human life. If it were, we should have to consider every navy superior to Shakespeare. We have been misled in this matter by two causes. One is the necessity of keeping the poor contented, which has led the rich for thousands of years to preach the dignity of labor while taking care of themselves to remain undignified in this respect. The other is the new pleasure in mechanism, which makes us delight in the astonishingly clever changes we can produce on the Earth's surface. Neither of these motives makes any great appeal to the actual worker. If you ask him what he thinks the best part of his life, he is not likely to say, I enjoy manual work because it makes me feel that I am fulfilling man's noblest task, and because I like to think how much man can transform his planet. It is true that my body demands periods of rest which I have to fill in as best way I may, but I am never so happy as when the morning comes and I can return to the toil from which my contentment springs. I have never heard a working man say this kind of thing. They consider work, as it should be considered, a necessary means to a livelihood, and it is from their leisure that they derive whatever happiness they may enjoy. I like it. He's just calling bullshit on the whole (laughs) (laughs) mythology of work as nobility. He's like, nobody actually believes that, right? Come on, right? People end up subscribing to it because they have no other option. But it's just one of those things where everybody's, you know, behind closed doors being like, no, of course I hate that, right? (laughs) 
Yeah. It's not politically correct, maybe, or it's not safe to say to the plant, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, although I would say that it's slightly maybe different for like, I mean, there's not that many people that make their living this way, but like the craftsman or the freelancer in some sense can be a little more contented, let's say, than the company man. We'll probably touch on this a little bit later, yeah. but I think it's hard to say whether he would consider craftsmen and artisans engaging in leisure or work. Right, exactly. So that's literally where I was going to go is where's the line, right? The For line? some people, yeah. Because one of the things he says is that if you increased leisure time, then more people would get into the exactly. arts, right? And exactly. writing and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, my job is writing. So is that work or is that right. I don't you enjoy it? Right. Even yeah. though sometimes I'm sure it's not always enjoyable, but any leisure is not, you know, any game, if you're playing a game, you know, if there's no struggle in the game, you're going to stop playing. Like we use cheat codes all the time, right? Like the game <laughs> gets boring. very boring, very yeah. fast. You need the struggle. But yeah, cause I was just going to, I was going to give the example of a lot of the brewers that I know, they just love making beer. Like they make beer at home, they homebrew and they own breweries. <laughs> and then they like, go into the brewery. Yeah, That's like, awesome. This is what they love. Um, <laughs> they might not love like the sales and marketing side of it. I've heard that quite a bit. It feels very much like bullshit to them sometimes because they just really like making beer, which is a lot of times you find just like in tech businesses, two founders where you'll have one who's kind of more the technical one and more one who's more sort of the salesy like hustler type. So yeah, but like when they go to the brewery that they're technically working at, that is technically work. But I guess it's a little different. They're moving matter around in the universe. Yeah, but, but I guess maybe it's, he might not even define it that way. Yeah. Well, I feel like yeah. as long as it counts as something you would like to do in your you free do, time. Whether you were getting paid or not. Right. Yeah, you know. Then yeah. it falls into the leisure category. Just like, for example, like you would read whether you got paid to read or not. Yeah, of course. Right? And, but somehow we get paid to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, because again, we have to go back to remembering the context, right? right? He's talking about 1935 Europe where a lot of people have been and are working in factories, right. assembling totally cars or assembly lines. So there's not a lot of people doing no tech startups. Yeah, there's, no, there's no podcasts, <laughs> right? There's no like Instagram fitness models. Right, exactly. There's factory work and, you know, probably some advertising salesy stuff and then some landowners and business managers. And there's very, that was also, if we go back to, uh, again, a sovereign individual reference, that was also the industrial era where, companies had gotten very large. Most right. people were in companies. I'm guessing the number of freelancers was significantly lower than oh, it is yeah. today, percentage-wise even. Right. And companies probably wouldn't hire freelancers because right. they would want to control their employees. That was right. sort of the ethos of the day. Exactly. So, so yeah, maybe he doesn't bring that up too much because of you know, it was such a edge case right. that it didn't really matter. Yeah. All right. Let's back to the essay. It will be said that while a little leisure is pleasant, Men would not know how to fill their days if they had only four hours of work out of the 24. Insofar as this is true in the modern world, it is a condemnation of our civilization. It would not have been true at any earlier period. There was formerly a capacity for lightheartedness and play, which has been, to some extent, inhibited by the cult of efficiency. The modern man thinks that everything ought to be done for the sake of something else, and never for its own sake. Serious-minded persons, for example, are continually condemning the habit of going to the cinema and telling us that it leads the young into crime. But all the work that goes to producing a cinema is respectable, because it is work and because it brings a money profit. The notion that the desirable activities are those that bring a profit has made everything topsy-turvy. The butcher who provides you with meat and the baker who provides you with bread are praiseworthy because they are making money. But when you enjoy the food that they have provided... You are merely frivolous, unless you eat only to get strength for your work. Broadly speaking, it is held that getting money is good and spending money is bad. Seeing that they are two sides of one transaction, this is absurd. One might as well maintain that keys are good, but keyholes are bad. 
Whatever merit there may be in the production of goods must be entirely derivative from the advantage to be obtained by consuming them. The individual in our society works for profit, but the social purpose of his work lies in the consumption of what he produces. It is this divorce between the individual and the social purpose of production that makes it so difficult for men to think clearly in a world in which profit-making is the incentive to industry. We think too much of production and too little of consumption. One result is that we attach too little importance to enjoyment and simple happiness, and that we do not judge production by the pleasure that it gives to the consumer. When I suggest that working hours should be reduced to four, I am not meaning to imply that all the remaining time should be necessarily spent in pure frivolity. I mean that four hours work a day should entitle a man to the necessities and elementary comforts of life, and that the rest of his time should be his to use as he might see fit. It is an essential part of any such social system that education should be carried further than it usually is at present and should aim in part at providing tastes which would enable a man to use leisure intelligently. I am not thinking mainly of the sort of things that would be considered highbrow. Peasant dances have died out except in remote rural areas, but the impulses which cause them to be cultivated must still exist in human nature. The pleasures of urban populations have become mainly passive, seeing cinemas, watching football matches, listening to the radio, and so on. This results from the fact that their active energies are fully taken up with work. If they had more leisure, they would again enjoy pleasures in which they took an active part. I love that section. Yeah, that last (laughs) paragraph about active and passive leisure is huge because it's so easy to see now. It's so easy. I mean, how many friends do you have who work eight, 10 hour days of jobs they don't like and then all they want to do when they come home is watch TV? Yeah, I was just about to say watch Netflix. Like that's literally the... (laughs) I, I think it's the only way to have fun that a lot of people know anymore. And especially because we've lost a lot of that creative energy. Well, they spend it. I mean, it's, it's all spent at work. Like yeah, I mean, you, you've worked in an office and stuff. It's like really, really hard to come back and do something that requires your creative brain. Oh, yeah. It's like, gone. I don't even know if it's possible. I mean, I'm sure some people have done it, but it would be really tough. Well, pretty much everyone I know who has succeeded in building something on the side beyond work did it by waking up before work. Yes. Right. Yeah. After would be like, yeah, if you try to do it after you're done, but if you like, you have to wake up and do it in the morning. Otherwise it just like drains you. And I think it's, I think a big part of it is when you have to focus on something you just don't care that much about, you drain your energy so much faster. Yeah. I find that days when we do this, I'm not like intellectually exhausted afterwards. It feels good. Yeah. You almost can go do whatever you want after. And it doesn't feel like you've spent your energy. Like that phrase would not be used at least for me, after doing a podcast. Like, I wouldn't yeah. feel like... Like, I could I, go home and write. Yeah, like, I don't feel like I'm drained. I almost sometimes feel more energized by the discussions. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, or like it gets your brain moving in a new direction, maybe, and it sparks an idea. Yeah. I feel that's why it's so easy to work on a project that you care about, like a startup or whatever, for 16-hour yeah. days, you know, yeah. from when you wake up to when you go to sleep, because it's not draining you in the same way that labor you don't care about drains you. Yeah. I mean, Mark Cuban in his uh, book, I think it's called Play to Win, but we'll link to it. Yeah, it's a short read. It's interesting. But he was talking about how would you even know you found something that you really enjoy doing? And he's giving his own example. And um, I think he said he showed up for work. It was like 10 a.m. And he started like because he was going to be selling uh, computers, I think. And that was like one of his first jobs that he was actually passionate about. And he said he started reading the manual. And he looked up like relatively looked up. I'm guessing it wasn't literally looked up, but it was 10 p.m. It was like 12 hours and he didn't eat lunch. He didn't eat dinner. And he was like rearing to go and sell these things, right? Like he was so excited by it. Yeah. And he was just like, it has to be something like that where 
it's not like a bank account being drained. It's like filling up the more you do it. Mm, it's like yeah, getting you more energized. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I really liked in this, mm-hmm. this section too, earlier on in the passage, when he's saying the modern man thinks that everything ought to be done for the sake of something else. Yeah. That reminds me of those like book things that are like, what's that one Twitter ad that goes around that's like, the uh, average CEO reads oh 50 books God. a year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, we're not even going to say their name because no. I don't want to promote them. But, no, but you know exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's basically this like life hacker type mentality that's like, like you can't do anything because it's for the sake of that activity. Right. You can't just read a book to read a book. And you do you get it. that question a lot? Like I get the question sometimes of like, I know when I first started brewing beer, people would be like, well, what are you doing it for? And I'm like, because it's fun. <laughs> like, I enjoy it? Yeah. like, but can't you just buy a beer? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but like, that's not why I'm doing this. It's just interesting. Well, or the same thing with reading. Like, I'm sure you get that question too, where it's just like, why do you read so much? It's like, why, how come you're reading these books that don't necessarily teach you anything? And I'm right, like, right. Cause it's a good book. Like that's, that's why the, I read it. That's the dangerous appeal of the like popcorn business books yeah. where, yep. you know, it's 200, 250 pages, very easy read. There's one idea wrapped up in 13 chapters of, you know, contextual examples of it. And you come out of it and you have this, you know, one new idea or whatever that, may well get overturned in like five or 10 years by better psych research (laughs) as happens too often. But, you know, you feel good after because it's like, oh, I read for something. Right. But then it's so much harder to justify reading fiction or philosophy because it's not clear, you know, what is the thing that I'm getting? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is the point? There's a uh, blog post. I'm blanking on who the author is, but I have it saved. So we'll put in the show notes. The title is it's okay to forget what you read. And he puts forget in quotation marks because I think he got like a reader question for his blog that was like, hey, I read a lot, but when I'm asked like recall, I don't quite remember everything, right? And I always feel like, am I wasting my time? And his response was, it's changing you in ways that you might not be able to quite point out. Like you might not be able to say, oh, from that book, I learned like this particular fact or that book gave me this particular idea. But you're still like, it's affecting you in some way. And I think that's a lot of the value of fiction. And even movies, to be fair, like movies and even like TV shows and stuff, like he even makes that point here. It's like not going to turn young people to criminals, but it changes you in different ways that you might not be able to point out. But it's not like you don't have to do it for something. You can just do it for the enjoyment. That's another point in the blog post is like, did you enjoy the book? Great. If you forgot it, that's even better because that means you could go read it again and get the the same enjoyment, right? Like that's like, (laughs) it's a huge point. Yeah. Sometimes you wish you would forget books. The first time I ever read anything, I think I read Black Swan by Taleb first, Mm -hmm. the like eye-openingness, I can't even describe it any other way of just like my whole conception of the world felt like it had been blown up. I want to go recreate that and I can't find necessarily a book that does the same thing. Well, I feel like that's part of how you get hooked on reading because I get this question sometimes too which is you know how do you read so much and it's not really that I deliberately am like making myself read a lot it's that I feel like I've just gotten in this mentality and I'm sure you're in it too where you want to read all the time because you're looking for those books we're trying to find books that will give you that experience yeah. and you only have to read one yeah that just completely <laughs> changes your worldview to then be really hooked on reading as like a tool for changing your mind, right? Or even just like the enjoyableness of that feeling is awesome. Like, oh yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> <was> great. <laughs> yeah. Like, We're just in it and you just can't put it down. Yeah, exactly. I think the one contentious point he makes here is, and this is the last sentence, right? Where he says, the pleasures of urban populations have become mainly passive, yeah. seeing cinemas, watching football matches, listening to the radio and so on. This results from the fact that their active energies are fully taken up with work, 
if they had more leisure, they would again enjoy pleasures in which they took an active part. That's an assumption. Right. I that's, I think that's the big thing that you have to challenge right. where, and it's, you know, it's like a legitimate concern with some of the universal basic income stuff, right? right? If you give everyone complete freedom from work, what happens? And I mean, we've talked about this before, but isn't there an experiment going on right now? I think there is that, like, somewhere in California. Doing something? Yeah. Y Combinator funded an experiment. Yeah. We'll have to look see, it up and link to it. And yeah. If there's some results they've released or report they've released, I'd be curious to see that. And, yeah. Yeah. We'll of course curious. link to it. Because, you know, when I read that, my first thought was, you know, okay, like you're Bertrand Russell, right? You love like reading poetry and math and thinking about philosophical stuff, but not everyone is you. Right. And, you know, genetically people are not you. Right. And so, okay, you can argue that you and your intelligentsia buddies will all do this given unlimited free time. But if you take the absolute bottom 10% of the bell curve and give them unlimited time, right? right. Like what, what happens? happens? Right. And I'm not saying that the solution on the other side is that you should like give them wage slavery where they have to work. But how do you balance that? Right. I mean, I think he also makes the point about the education thing, like where you need to kind of teach people to you, but basically their education should be carried further and should aim at providing tastes, which would enable a man to use leisure intelligently. That's where I was going before where like you can't hit reset. So like, let's say UBI becomes a thing in five years, right? So many people have already gone through the education system, even if I'm, let's say, magically, you could change the education system for the kids coming up now to better use their leisure time. What about all the all of us who are already adults who've been brought up in this existing kind of regime? What do you do? Especially like, not just the work regime, but the television regime where and, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about this a lot in probably two episodes from now. Maybe next episode. Well, we'll see how the time it soon. <laughs> but when you've grown up accustomed to constant, quick, bite-sized entertainment, everything else seems boring, right? Because it's hitting that that endorphin rod. Yeah, Yeah, like a book can never compare to television for how entertaining it is. So In the short term. Well, no, no, no. I actually think in any term. In general. If you watch television regularly, you cannot focus on a book. I see what you're saying. It destroys your ability to do it. Like the only way you get that ability back is by... Stopping watching TV for the most part. TV fast. Right. Yeah. TV fast. Like just if you don't watch it for a month, it'll become way easier to read books. But if you're watching it regularly, especially if you're watching the news or anything informational. CNN, breaking news for the past eight years. Well, but, <laughs> but what's crazy is, you know, a news segment is almost never longer than 45 seconds, which is hardly enough time to dig into an issue. <laughs> which is not enough time, not hardly yeah. enough time. But if you get used to this little bite-sized of information and it's fast and there's pretty colors and the camera changes every four seconds, right? And they speak in a tone. I've noticed this because my parents watch CNN. So it's the only time is when I'm home, I get exposed to CNN. And I hear Wolf Blitzer talk. Yeah. My like... I feel like that fight or flight sense and there's something, I feel <laughs> like, like they hire people based on this. Yeah. These like breaking news alert. Yeah. Donald Trump has said whatever. And this just in. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, wait, that's not really a, that's not breaking news. If you actually take a step back, right. you're like, a, that's not breaking news. B, why are you saying it like that? Like it's like <laughs> the end of the world. <laughs> But I feel like they hire people based on their ability to do this because you're going to watch, right? Oh, yeah. And you're right. A book cannot compare to that. Like, yeah. And I think to Russell's point here, you would have to untrain yourself yeah. or the population from that constant stimulus to get out of the habit of passive leisure and get back into the active leisure. But that's where I'm going is like how – because yeah, UBI is like a proposal for how we structure society, right? right? And that there will be like – let's say that happens. It will like be like a day that it goes into effect. Like there'll be a discrete point in time. Right. So there will be people like pre-UBI and post-UBI who are educated. 
the post UBI people might be okay, right? Like if a kid is five, when UBI goes into effect, maybe you can, they can come up in a way to Russell's point, they'll be able to use their leisure more, assuming that's possible, let's say. But all the people who are like, I don't know, already 25 and older, which would be the majority of the people. Yeah. I mean, if you're 25 and you've been unemployed for two or three years, like collecting unemployment and playing video games in your underwear, like how much of that is going to change? Exactly. That's my point. It's like, I don't think that person's going to go like start reading the next day. Right. They're not immediately going to take up painting right? right, and open an Etsy store. Right. So I think, I mean, obviously he's making the point that leisure is good. So he's not debating like UBI's implementation. So that'd be like a totally different essay if he was to write something (laughs) like that. Yeah. So I don't think he needed to go into the depth on that here. But like, I think speaking practically, like we live in an era where it's like, a legitimate proposal. It's not a like a fanciful idea. It's something people are taking pretty seriously. So there could be a day where it does go into effect and that's like, we'll see if what he's talking about here actually... I, I really hope it does. It'll yeah, be fun it'll to be come awesome. back and listen to these conversations <laughs> yeah. and either say, oh my God, we were so wrong or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we called it. I don't know. I guess we're still not decided well, either. Well, I'm not decided. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, still on the fence. I haven't made a... Yeah, I haven't gone one I think way it's an interesting topic. Maybe we'll have to do a podcast just dedicated to that. Back into the essay. In the past, there was a small leisure class and a large working class. The leisure class enjoyed advantages for which there was no basis in social justice. This necessarily made it oppressive, limited its sympathies, and caused it to invent theories by which to justify its privileges. These facts greatly diminished its excellence, but in spite of this drawback, it contributed nearly the whole of what we call civilization. It cultivated the arts and discovered the sciences. It wrote the books, invented the philosophies, and refined social relations. Even the liberation of the oppressed has usually been inaugurated from above. Without the leisure class, mankind would never have emerged from barbarism. The method of a leisure class without duties was, however, extraordinarily wasteful. None of the members of the class had to be taught to be industrious, and the class as a whole was not exceptionally intelligent. The class might produce one Darwin, but against him had to be set tens of thousands of country gentlemen who never thought of anything more intelligent than fox hunting and punishing poachers. At present, the universities are supposed to provide, in a more systematic way, what the leisure class provided accidentally and as a byproduct. This is a great improvement, but it has certain drawbacks. University life is so different from life in the world at large that men who live in academic milieu tend to be unaware of the preoccupations and problems of ordinary men and women. Moreover, their ways of expressing themselves are usually such as to rob their opinions of the influence that they ought to have upon the general public. Another disadvantage is that in universities, studies are organized, and the man who thinks of some original line of research is likely to be discouraged. Academic institutions, therefore, useful as they are, are not adequate guardians of the interests of civilization in a world where everyone outside their walls is too busy for unutilitarian pursuits. I like how he's challenging himself a little bit for some of the reasons we just discussed, where, okay, yes, obviously not everyone in the leisure class will create these great works of art. Maybe it'll be one in 10,000, but if it goes from 10,000 to 10 million, you're going to have more of the ones, right? right you have a bigger top you have a bigger top funnel. And then also the universities, right? I'd never thought of university this way, but yeah. it makes a lot of sense. And Especially I think the way it used to be from what I've read, obviously exactly. of university, I don't think in our time of going to college, it was more sort of like uh, regimented than everything I've read about how university life used to be was much more this sort of almost country gentleman style life that they had of thinking and reading. and But at least I would say from my experience, it was like classes, homework. Well, I think that's the big problem too, is that it's kind of like... It's the, like an extension of high school almost in that way. 
Well, I was going to say it's similar to the problem that we discussed earlier, where instead of, you know, men relaxing their work, you know, we increase the demands on women instead of universities relaxing to the point of greater intellectual stimulation, they have increased the demands on students to the point of no intellectual exploration, where you can't. I think in most colleges, you don't have this environment where you go sit with the professor and a few other students for a couple hours after class and discuss, you know, the Kant reading that you did today. You have to go home and do this insane amount of homework (laughs) because you don't actually care about the material. You care about getting an A because you need to get a perfect GPA so that you can, you know, go work at Goldman Sachs, go work at Goldman Sachs, (laughs) have your parents love you, whatever. (laughs) It's a completely flipped environment from what Russell's arguing for here, where it's like, no, we need to create more intellectual leisure because that's where the great idea ideas come from, to your point from earlier, but instead we've created less intellectual leisure by increasing the intellectual demands, right? I mean, to that point about where ideas come from, they don't happen when you're really fixated on the problem. They happen after. And if you make students always fixate on these things, trying to get perfect A's or whatever, they're never having that point for- Original ideas. Yes, serendipity ideas, anything. And I wonder too, well, two points here. One- as universities are shifting to kind of more adjunct professors and things, professors don't even have that time for original lines of thought because it's usually a side thing for adjunct professors. I forget there was a stat of how universities are vastly increasing adjunct as opposed to tenuring existing professors. Cheaper. Yeah. yeah, cheaper for sure. So that's point number one. But I was going to say point number two is I like how he calls out the sort of social structure of universities where he says university studies are organized and the man who thinks of some original line of research is likely to be discouraged. You kind of see that still, right? So it's interesting that he calls it out at that time. Well, especially in the much softer sciences. So if you're at a liberal arts university and you want to do any kind of social research that does not go in line with a very like liberal political view of the world, yep. you're not going to get funded. No, <laughs> you're not, even not gonna be allowed to do it. You're not yeah. going to get tenure. It's just it's, not happening. <laughs> that, that intellectual exploration and debate is, you know, highly discouraged. I think, you know, luckily philosophy, I think seems to have stayed relatively safe okay. just because it's such, it's more on the like pure side where nobody's doing, you know, like science. They're not calling it science, right? There's a lot of things that, that call themselves also, science that's true. That's that are not science, point. right? That's a very good point. And like philosophy, you know, it doesn't pretend. Right. And then obviously physics Someone doesn't have start, to. Though. You just gave someone an idea. Some university is going to call it philosophical science. Philosophical science. Oh my God, I'm sure. <laughs> we should actually search if that's a thing. I bet some university <laughs> sure thought it has. Yeah. Or someone wrote a book about it. Some, yeah. That's the other thing I think in like social sciences, a lot of times if you come up with any insight whatsoever, you can write a book and make some good money, like not professor money, you can make real money. Whereas in philosophy, it's like much harder to tie that to any kind of like pop psychology, you know, yeah, like exactly. you don't really have pop philosophy. Well, you do have pop philosophy, but it's not real. Ph- it's not really coming yeah, out of philosophy departments. Unfortunately, all the pop philosophy is just absolutely atrocious books like You're a Badass or uh, The Secret or, oh, yeah. although I, I don't know, I, I hate to call that philosophy, but I feel like it's the closest thing. Would those go thing. in philosophy? I guess Well, I mean, there's no science behind them. Self-help. So self-help goes into philosophy, I guess. Well, the original self-help is philosophy, right? right? Like stoicism, that's self-help. That's true. The OG, right? But I mean, if there's no science behind it, and if it's just conjecture, then I guess you call it philosophy. I mean, I hate to use that term, but I don't have a better one. It's not philosophy, man. It's science. No, I know it's not. The secret of science. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The law of attraction. Yes. Fixating on millions of podcast downloads. Tune in next week to see if it happens. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Unless a lot of you really <laughs> like this one. <laughs> anyway. 
All right, you want to read the last section here? Yep. In a world where no one is compelled to work more than four hours a day, every person possessed of scientific curiosity will be able to indulge it, and every painter will be able to paint without starving, however excellent his pictures may be. Young writers will not be obliged to draw attention to themselves by sensational potboilers with a view to acquiring the economic independence needed for monumental works, for which, when the time at last comes, they will have lost the taste and capacity. Men who, in their professional work, have become interested in some phase of economics or government will be able to develop their ideas without the academic detachment that makes the work of university economists often seem lacking in reality. Medical men will have the time to learn about the progress of medicine. Teachers will not be exasperatedly struggling to teach by routine methods things which they learned in their youth, which may in the interval have been proved to be untrue. Above all, there will be happiness and joy of life instead of frayed nerves, weariness, and dyspepsia. The work exacted will be enough to make leisure delightful, but not enough to produce exhaustion. Since men will not be tired in their spare time, they will not demand only such amusements as are passive and vapid. At least 1% will probably devote the time not spent in professional work to pursuits of some public importance, and since they will not depend upon these pursuits for their livelihood, their originality will be unhampered, and there will be no need to conform to the standards set by elderly pundits. But it is not only in these exceptional cases that the advantages of leisure will appear. Ordinary men and women, having the opportunity of a happy life, will become more kindly and less persecuting and less inclined to view others with suspicion. The taste for war will die out, partly for this reason and partly because it will involve long and severe work for all. Good nature is, of all moral qualities, the one that the world needs most, and good nature is the result of ease and security, not of a life of arduous struggle. Modern methods of production have given us the possibility of ease and security for all. We have chosen, instead, to have overwork for some and starvation for others. Hitherto, we have continued to be as energetic as we were before there were machines. In this, we have been foolish, but there is no reason to go on being foolish forever. Yeah, that was a really good conclusion of what he's been talking about here. Yeah. Such a great last few sentences. Yeah. Unfortunately, 80 years later, we are still being foolish, (laughs) perhaps more foolish. But I think it's, I don't know, I, I have... A hard time with it at parts yeah, because I do think it's he's so making a lot of assumptions, but idealistic. Yeah, that okay. If we just reduce working hours to four, then there'll be economic prosperity for all, and we'll be happy, and you know, bunnies and rainbows, and there'll be no war. And <laughs> right? yeah, right. It's, I think it's it's, it's like okay. It's probably a stretch. I, I think the biggest challenge is there's no way to do it right, especially like what is the like, like how, how do you get there? Right? How do you get there? Because there's so many issues where you say okay. Say you're a company and you say, you know what? I read and praise of idleness. I love it. I'm going to cut all of our working hours in half and maintain this level of production. That'll work for maybe a year, but then you'll get destroyed by a competitor who doesn't do it. Or, I mean, I would say that or like what you were saying earlier about the social pressures of appearing to work. Like so there's advantages will... to appearing to work, right? Like, yeah. So I think actually this is what I was trying to say earlier. I think I didn't make the point quite as well as I could have. I think there's like one big weakness for Russell is I don't think he has that good of a grasp on practical psychology, like how humans actually interact. He has a very academic view of, I think, how people interact. I don't know if he ever worked for a company or not, you know, but I would be surprised if he has, because let's say, you know, you have a company and you say, okay, I think Netflix did this where they said, you know, there's unlimited time off. Right. And then what ended up happening is nobody took time off. People took less time off. Yeah. They had to mandate that you have to take time off. 
And then I'm sure now it's like, if you take more than the mandated, it's like, oh my gosh, you, mm. you took time off. Mm. Yeah. But it's not like the company's policy right. to look down upon that. But that's sort of like the unwritten rule or the you know kind of social stigma that results from that. So yeah, there's definitely a kind of a utopia vision that he has in this. Well, and, and it's like you said, but I think a larger point still is valid. Yeah, I think it, it can work for the individual, but I mean, yes, you know, for, for the individual, right? That's what I mean. But for the point you were just making, I think it would break down within the company. And yeah, so it, it applies within the company, like the example you gave, but there's also the meta levels, right? So within the company, if some people are working less than others, there'll be that race to the bottom where you keep working more and more for optics. But then if you have one company that's working half, you know, 20 hour weeks and another one's doing 40, the 40 hour is going to destroy the 20 hour one, or it's going to have to keep upping the workers hours to compete with the 40 hour week company. And then, so, okay, so how do you prevent that? The country creates laws that people can only work 20 hours a week. But then as soon as you do that, another country- Didn't France try something like that? Like where they try to like limit- We'll, we'll look that up and put it in the yeah. show notes if that's true. If France not, does have some it. laws about it. There was something about like responding to emails or something Ooh, like after yeah, work hours. respond to emails after 5 p.m. Or yeah, something. but then like, yeah. I don't know, A, how that works in terms of like, what's the consequence? Like, oh, I well, responded to an email at 5.01. I don't think it's that you can't. It's that companies can't punish you. Right. Like, well, exactly what we're talking about here is like the subtle yeah. punishments of like, even like the Netflix example, like. They had to make a rule that you took vacation right. <laughs> because people didn't want to take vacation. Yeah. So in this France example, would people like keep answering emails? Like, it's like, yeah, the company's not forcing me. Like, probably nothing changed, I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know. Having, having hung out in Paris, I feel like oh, it's they were pretty okay. It's just such a different culture, <laughs> yeah. right? Where everyone's already, you know, out of the cafe drunk at 5 p.m. already anyway. So. <laughs> hey, no one says you can't do business drunk. Oh, that's my favorite way to do business. <laughs> yeah, we've been blasted for this whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Not actually. Unfortunately not. But even <laughs> no. though we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. Neil's going to bring the beer next time. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will. I, was, I failed this time. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, the other thing I wanted to bring up on this last section here was where the part where you said the taste for war will die out, partly for this reason and partly because it will involve long and severe work for all. Yeah. There's actually an interesting proposal I've seen. Um, I forget who said it. It was probably a while ago. But it was basically anytime America does a military action, like an active military action to impose a war tax. So basically it's like you keep a defense budget, like the defense budget is basically for the maintenance of the military, Uh but the cost of deployment and of an active engagement. So like we go to Iraq or we go to like Afghanistan or we go to like any, any intervention that we do, that additional cost is not funded through deficit. It's funded through a direct tax on people. And this is kind of like a similar idea to what he's talking about here where it's like, okay, yeah, you can go to war, but like it's going to cost you 10% of your income. Right. How many more people would be anti-war if that was the case? <laughs> like I think a lot more people would be like I can either buy like an Xbox or we can go fight this, you know, group that I don't know much about. Like I think it would just change the dynamics of going to war. Like it wouldn't be as uh trivial of a decision as maybe it seems right now where people are like, "Yeah, bomb them." Well, it's like is it worth it? Is it worth taking food out of your mouth to go do that? Yeah. Well, and what I was going to say is especially when all of that money is already going to the military, right? When right. what like 40% of government spending is on military. Right. And so it's Which kind of like that point earlier too. Yeah, well, it's kind of like, well, we already spent the money on it. We may as well go blow some may as well use right? it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like that would really change it. But I think the biggest challenge here is or not the biggest challenge, but you know, one of the challenges we've talked about and that we uh, we can come back to is what is work now, 
right? Because I think, like we were saying in Russell's day, it was very clear. You know, factory, you were in a factory, like, yeah. company man, whatever. But you know, does this count? Are we only allowed to do podcasty, writey stuff four hours a day? <laughs> like, I feel like that's fine, yeah. but. Are we just committing a new version of the same fallacy where, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time in anything that's pure leisure, right? Because even reading is kind of productive because it ends up getting played into this or, you know, I like learning something like photography and that's like kind of productive, right? right? I'm like putting it on my Instagram and that's sort of part of the whole business, right? It's so hard to know where the lines are. Especially now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I feel like maybe as a good heuristic, it's just anything you don't want to be doing that you have to do to put food in your mouth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was thinking the opposite way of defining leisure. Oh, Um, smart. Like I was thinking like what I do, that's pure leisure. And so yeah, reading, you could definitely make the argument, you know, if you really want that that's work because it's going into this or I have my newsletter or like we write about what we read as well. So like someone can make the argument, okay, that's part of your work. Podcasting. Yeah. That's part of your work. You can make that argument. Uh, I would say like the time I spend with like friends and family would definitely count as leisure because I'm not like doing that to make a post about something or I'm not doing (laughs) that to like tweet about, you know, it's not like for a purpose. If I was doing it for like a purpose, like, oh, I'm going to hang out with Nat today because like I can tweet about it and (laughs) and then he'll retweet it and I'll be exposed. That'll be famous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That would be like totally different. But I think if you're doing like you know, if you're just hanging out with your friends and family for the sake of hanging out with your friends and family, that's like, no one can make the argument that that's work. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a sliding scale, yeah. right? There's some things that are obviously pure blurred, work. Yeah. But it's definitely blurred now. It's to your point, like it's not as well-defined as it was in Russell's day where it was, okay, you're going to a factory, you're going to the office. Cause yeah, there's probably plenty of people today who work from home and it does feel like work to them. And it's not necessarily the fact that you're going to an office or working from home. That's the distinction. Yeah, it's probably just going down to the mentality and if you would do it, even if you weren't making money from it. Right. Right. Yeah, like, what I feel like that's a good heuristic. You, yeah. Like uh, one of my mentors used to bring that up actually uh, when I was in college. She'd be like, would you be doing this if you never got paid to do it? Like, and it's a, you know, it's a good question. A lot it's of really times for what you're, you know, for what you're working on, it's a good question to ask yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll leave everyone with that and suggest that you go find or you can get it on kindle too but you can also just get a copy of the article online it's, yeah, it's not long Google. yeah and we just read you the whole thing so maybe you don't even need it but we'll link to it too yeah any other closing thoughts um no i mean if there's one thing that i would take away from this article it's um maybe not feel as guilty when i'm if i'm doing something that doesn't necessarily tie to something else yeah else as uh, that's why i like rereading it too yeah it's, just, it's, it's a good, a good reminder, reminder that it's okay to goof off yeah, yeah. exactly because especially like we live in this like era where I don't know if it's maybe the social circle of people we hang out with and stuff, but like a lot of the articles and stuff that are shared, it's like how to get more done with your day or it's yeah. a lot of it's on the productivity side of things. So it's good to like, you know, indoctrinate yourself with stuff like this as well. Especially if you go on, you know, Medium or Lifehacker right. or any of those and it's like how to do 20 different things before 8 a.m. Yeah, and right. like the most yep. successful people do this. Are you doing it? Right. Like, oh my God, there's so many things I have to do. Right. And but, you feel like you're falling behind. Yeah. You feel and like uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, aside from all the like social political stuff, even just for yourself, and I think he's also making the argument here, it has to be individual, kind of like a, it's almost like a revolution in your own mentality of like, it's okay. It's You're okay. not doing work. It's okay. Yeah. Chill out. No, <laughs> yeah. no more slave morality. Right. So good read. Good read. All right. We will see you all next time. Thanks guys. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But 
As always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.